Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to the book of Hebrews chapter 7? Hebrews chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible today, I want to encourage you, and I I don't just say this every week because it's something to say, I I, I legitimately would like you to have a Bible in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those hardback black Bibles from under your chair. If you're using one of those, it's page 1004 is where we're going to land today. If you want to use your phone, that's fine. Just maybe click that silent button on the side as you're using your phone or your Bible app on your phone. Uh, Today, we're continuing in our series in the book of Hebrews, which we've entitled, Jesus is Better And this is our 10th week in this series, which means I don't have time to go through everything we've covered thus far. But as we look at chapter 7, it's going to be helpful for us to think back a little bit. So, So what I want to remind you is back to two weeks before we pause to celebrate Advent. Back at the beginning of chapter 5. Our author was working to show us how Jesus is better than all of the earthly ministers, all of the the spiritual leaders that God has given us. And as he's talking about that, he moves into the end of chapter 5, and he had to stop his discussion. He, He told his audience that there was so much more that he needed to cover, but he couldn't because these Christians had become dull of hearing. That's the words he used. They'd become stuck in a state of perpetual adolescence. And so what we saw was this call for them to grow up into maturity in Christ. When we picked up after Advent in the first half of chapter 6, we encountered a very serious warning not to delay this call that we have to repentance and this encouragement to endure in Christ. And then in the second half of chapter 6 last week, we talked about how, how we actually go about enduring in Christ. And the application we walked with was was the truth that we endure to the end in Christ by enduring through the middle, by enduring through everything that comes our way, big and small, throughout our daily lives. And we endure through those daily challenges that we encounter by clinging to the promises of God in Scripture. But now as we begin chapter 7 this morning, it will help our understanding if if we keep in mind that everything we covered between the end of chapter 5 all through chapter 6, all of that is is a sort of parenthetical aside. It's a comment that that the author of Hebrews had to make. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then he, he gives all the reasons why it's so important for them to grow up. He gives us all of those encouragements and admonitions in, in the last part of chapter 5 and all through chapter 6. But now as we come to chapter 7, our author is returning to his original discussion. This is the stuff about which he had much more to say. This is the meat, if you will, that he wanted to move on to. And as we get ready to try and digest this meat, the question that I want to ask you, the the question I want you to have ruminating in the back of your mind all throughout this time that we're looking at this text is this. Where is your hope? That's that's a question I want you to think about. I, I know that's a question I ask you guys like all the time, but I ask you that all the time because I think we are prone to forget that all the time. And so I want to I want you to think about that question, where is your hope? Cuz in chapter 7, 
what, what our author is gonna work to show us is that Jesus gives us a better hope. In fact, that's our big takeaway for today. As we're looking at this text, Jesus gives us a better hope. You see, these Jewish Christians who received this letter, who were reading it, had grown up in the culture of Judaism. And because of that, they might have been tempted to place their hope somewhere other than Jesus. So as we look at this text today, I I really want you to consider that question. Where is your hope? Okay, can we do that? That's the question I want you to be thinking about as we read this. Where is your hope? So let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to begin at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descended of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of those, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare to look at this text, we would ask right now, that you would teach us. 
that, that you would do the work that you said that you will do, that you would help us to see what's going on here. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to understand and receive this word that you have for us. As, as we consider this question, where's my hope? God, I ask that you would help us to place our hope in your son. Help us to place our hope in you, not in anything else that comes our way. God, that's what your word is showing us here. And so we ask that you would do this work that you've said you would do. God, at the same time, if there's someone here who doesn't know the kind of hope we're talking about, who's never come to repentance in you, who's never found you to be their Lord and Savior, God, I ask that today would be the day where they would repent of their sin, where they would put their pride to death and they would find the freedom and joy that is available in your son. God, do this work for us today. We're desperate for you to work for us. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we've looked at this text, you may have noticed that we have covered an awful lot of ground. We've covered a lot of text. In fact, 25 verses up there on the screen that we've gone through, and we've done that really to make just one point. And we've done that to make this point because because what's going on here is that our author is using a complex teaching style called syncresis. And what you do with syncresis is you take two objects that are, are similar, or two people that are similar, and you compare them in order to find the worth. Now, I get that that's complex. It's not something we use in our modern teaching very often, but I, I've got a demonstration for you to, to help you understand this text, but I'm going to need you all to step out of your comfort zone just a little bit. This is going to require some audience participation. Can you guys do that for me today? Okay, you've already failed the test. Can you guys do that for me today? Okay, now you're talking. Okay, that, that's a better start. So here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have Meg put a picture up on the screen. Meg, can you put that first picture up on the screen? Okay, we've got a picture on the screen right here. I want you to tell me, what is it that we're looking at up here? It, it's a ring. What kind of ring? A, a wedding ring. Let's be a little bit more picky than that. It's an engagement ring, right? It's, it's a beautiful engagement ring. Am I right? That's a good-looking ring, but, but, but there's a little bit of details you need to know about that engagement set that's up there, okay? First, what we're looking at is a white sapphire engagement set. Specifically, that's a 7-millimeter cushion-cut white sapphire flanked by two 3.4-millimeter round-cut white sapphires set in sterling silver. That's a, that's a beautiful ring, am I right? That's a gorgeous ring. Now, now, ladies, let me ask you, more audience participation here, how many of you would be happy to receive that ring as a gift? Raise your hands. Okay, like three hands, and one of them's a dude. Now, <laughs> okay, seriously though, if somebody just said, hey, I've got a ring for you, I want to give it to you, who'd be happy to have it? Okay, there, there, that's better. You're helping me make my point. I appreciate that. Okay, now, now you can, everybody's got their hands down, good. Okay, Meg, can I get you to throw up the next picture? Okay, so... What do we have up on the screen now? Another ring, okay? It's an engagement ring, right? But this one, this one yeah, does not have the, the additional wedding band, right? So we got another ring on the screen here, but there's a few differences. They're very, very similar here. But this one up here is an absolutely stunning diamond engagement set. This center ring, the center stone there is a 1.5 carat round cut diamond. It's flanked by two three quarter carat round cut diamonds set in white gold, 14 carat white gold up there. Now, 
let's, let's put those two pictures up side by side. Side by side, there we go. Okay, so we got them side by side right there now. They're beautiful. At first glance, they seem very similar, but there's one distinctive difference that you need to know as we look at these two rings up here. This one here on, on the left, the sapphire ring. If you want that ring, it's, it's gonna set you back $269.99. I could totally win at the price is right, right? $269.99, but the one on the left if you want that one, ladies, like if you want your, your husband, your boyfriend, whatever, to go get you that one, he's going to have to go sell your car. Because that one on the right, I said left and right, I said them backwards, I'm sorry. <laughs> Figure out which is which. Okay, so the one on the right is the diamond ring. That one costs $21,859.99. I did the math. It's 81 times more expensive than the one on the left, okay? Now, Here's the test. Knowing everything that we know about these two rings, which one would you rather have? The sapphire on the left or the diamond on the right? <laughs> My daughter has failed the test. <laughs> which one would, if we're being completely honest, like if you don't have to pay for it, if it was a free gift offered to you, you don't have to go sell the car. If you get a choice, which one do you want? You, you want the diamond, right? You want the, want the one that's worth more, okay? We, we can all be honest, this is a safe place. That's what's going on here. Well, I got news for you. That's what our author is doing in our, our text today. He, he's gonna compare Jesus to these other things, and he wants them to see that as valuable as these other things are, Jesus is better. You can take that down, thank you. That's, that's what we're gonna see him doing here today. So, so with all of that in mind, now we understand how this is gonna work, let's, let's dive into our text. Our author concluded chapter six by telling us that Jesus has gone to the throne room of heaven as a forerunner on our behalf. We talked about that last week. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says that and then he moves into chapter seven, verse one, he says, for this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." This king and priest that we're looking at here named Melchizedek makes his first appearance in Genesis chapter 14. And, and he makes it as Abraham was coming home from rescuing Lot, his nephew, who had been captured by King Ketelamur as King Ketelamur led a war that was raging between nine different city-states. Abraham had freed Lot as, as he fought Ketelamur, but, but then he also captured a bunch of the spoils of war that, that Ketelamur had taken as he sacked Sodom and as he sacked Gomorrah. So he's coming back with this massive amount of wealth. And as he's coming back with his nephew and all this wealth, they encounter Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out to him bringing bread and wine for refreshment. He blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of everything that he has. That's how the Bible introduces us to Melchizedek. But here in Hebrews and, and also in Genesis, Melchizedek is called a priest of the Most High God. 
So Melchizedek's there and he's serving in this dual capacity. He is a priest and he's the king. He, t- he tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that by translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. And that's because Melchizedek's name is literally two Hebrew words smashed together. The first half of his name, Melchi, means literally my king is and the second half of his name, Zedek, means righteousness. His name, literally translated is, my king is righteousness. But he is also the king of peace because he's king of Salem. Salem, geographically, that's Jerusalem. In fact, Salem is in the name, Jerusalem. But, but that word means peace. So, so what we have is this priestly king who is king of righteousness and king of peace. And at this point, as we're reading this text, we have to pause for just a second and ask the question, does that sound familiar? Is there anyone else in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, maybe in the New Testament, who, who is both a priest and a king, who, who is called a king of righteousness, who is called a king of peace? Do we know anybody else that might be fitting into that. This is where you answer Jesus, right? Like Jesus, the the, the answer, younger kids, the answer is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. If you're at church, the answer is Jesus, right? That's not an accident. It's not an accident that this sounds and looks just like Jesus, but there's more to it than just that. Look, look Look at the text again. You see, the author tells us that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And what he's saying here is that we've got no record of when he was born. We don't know who his ancestors were. We don't know when he ascended to his throne. We don't know when he died and moved on. All we know is that he appears at this moment in time in the Bible, and then it's like, it's like he goes on forever. That's the picture that's being painted there. And what our author is saying is that in this, he is a type for Jesus, that he resembles Christ. Now, when we're talking about biblical typology, it's, it's a chunk of theology where we look and we see a person or a thing or, or an event in the Old Testament, and we say that that is a precursor, that it's, it's foreshadowing, that it's kind of giving us a, a glimpse of Jesus ahead of time. So, so when we think about other types in the Old Testament. You might think last week we talked about Abraham and Isaac, right? And and Abraham took his son Isaac and he put his son Isaac, his only son, up on an altar to sacrifice him. And in that, Isaac becomes a type for Jesus. Isaac, Abraham's only son. Jesus, God's only son, who God sacrificed for us on our behalf. Or you think about Jonah Jonah, who spends three days in the belly of the great fish, and then the fish spits him out onto dry land, and it's like he comes back to life after they'd thrown him into the sea. And in that, Jonah is a type for Jesus, who spent three days in the tomb. But on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. Jonah is a type for Jesus. And what our author is saying here is that Melchizedek is a type for Jesus. He's foreshadowing Jesus for us. And in that role, he's going to be like one of those rings we threw up on the screen a few minutes ago, okay? So our author introduces Melchizedek as a type for Jesus. And then he goes on, and now he's going to start comparing the rings back and forth between us. Take a look. We're going to start at verse 4 here. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives the tithes, paid the tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what we're seeing here in these seven verses, see, we're going to go fast, but in these seven verses, our author is working to show the, the superiority of Melchizedek in, in the face of Abraham. And Melchizedek, remember, is representing Jesus. So what he's doing is he's showing that Jesus is superior to Abraham. Remember, our author is working to show us that Jesus gives us a better hope. And so he begins by addressing some of the lesser hopes that these Jewish Christians might have been tempted to place their hope in. And the first is Abraham. Okay, remember, these are Jewish Christians. They've grown up in the culture of Judaism, and the pinnacle of their patriarchs is Abraham, right? We, those of you who've grown up in the church, you, you know the song, right? Father Abraham had many, right? I'm sorry, chasing a rabbit, right? He is the pinnacle. He is the top. He is the most important of their patriarchs. They were children of Abraham. God had blessed them. And so it could have been very tempting for them to place their hope in Abraham, to place their hope in the fact that they were the children of Abraham. They were Israel. They were Jewish. God had blessed them. And here what our author wants them to see is that they've got a better hope available. You see, as great as Abraham was, even Abraham had met somebody who was superior to him, who was greater than him. And we know that because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It's not the other way around. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. The Levitical priesthood established in the law that God had handed down from Moses commanded that the law... Um, commanded in that law that they would receive tithes, right? That was just, it was in the law. The, the, the Levites had to receive the tithes from their brothers, from the other 12 tribes of Israel. But in a manner of speaking, even those Levites had paid a tithe because they were Abraham's offspring. So they had, those Levites who received the tithe, that's what our author's getting at here. They had paid a tithe through Abraham. Yes, Yes, these Jewish people, as a nation, they have a special status. Yes, they have a special position. They have a, a right to think that and believe that because God has blessed them. There is a sort of hope that these Jewish Christians could have in their identity as members of Abraham's family. But our author wants them to see that there is a better hope available in Jesus. And now we pause. And, and we say, okay, so how does that work for us? Because I don't think any of us are Jewish, right? What's, what's the connection there? You see, I think we have a parallel tempt, temptation here because while we're not children of Abraham by our ancestry, none of us are, are Jewish here, that doesn't mean we don't have this temptation. We have that temptation. You see, like these Jewish Christians that were raised up in the culture of Judaism, all of us, especially my generation, we were raised up in the culture of America. 
We were raised in American Christianity. We were raised to love our country, to care about our country. And so the temptation for us is that we place our hope in America. We're tempted to place our hope in who gets elected to Congress. We're tempted to place our hope in who judges from the highest court in the land. We're tempted to place our hope in who sits in the Oval Office. But, but church, you need to hear me on this. We have got a better hope. Jesus gives us a better hope. We don't have to place our hope in who sits in the Oval Office because our hope is placed in the one who sits at the right hand of God. That's a better hope. And, and I don't want you to mishear me on this. Listen, I love this country. I've given 20 years of my life in service of this country, my entire adult life until literally like three weeks ago to this country. I love this country. And I absolutely do care about who walks the halls of Congress. I do care about who sits on the Supreme Court. I do care about who occupies the White House, but I don't place my hope in that. My hope is not in the rise and fall of the United States. My hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ who, who hung on the cross, who died for our sins, who rose in victory over sin and death from that grave. That is where my hope is. Jesus gives us a better hope. And so we need to cling to that hope. Like we've all sung that song so many times. My, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? It's sinking sand. We've got one hope, and it's better than being an American. So we've got to place our hope in the right place. That's what we're seeing here. Jesus gives us a better hope, but there's a second temptation, a second area that these Christians might be tempted to place their hope, and our author addresses that starting in verse 11. Take a look. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be? Would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Now, in, in the previous paragraph, our author was addressing these Jewish Christians who were tempted to place their hope in Abraham, and he wanted them to see the superiority of Jesus over Melchizedek and thus over Abraham. He wanted them to understand that Jesus offers a better hope than Abraham, but here he wants them to see that Jesus offers a better hope than the Levitical priesthood, than the law that those priests were there to mediate. And so he begins with a question that has some pretty significant implications. He, he asks, in effect, if perfection had been made available in the Levitical priesthood, who, who mediated this law for us, if that had been the case, then why has there been another priest? Why are we given a priest that's after the order of this Melchizedek guy and not after Aaron? 
Do you, do you see the implications in that question? There's, there's kind of two big ones I want you to walk away with. First, he's implying, and, and he'll actually say this pretty bluntly when we get to verse 19, that, that the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments of the Old Testament that we find in our Bible, that, that those cannot bring about perfection. The law can't make you perfect. And because that's the case, he's also implying that there was a need for another priesthood. Not like the Levites who descended from Aaron, Moses' brother, but like Melchizedek. Now, what kind, what kind of priest was Melchizedek? We, we saw it a minute ago. He's a priest without beginning or end. He's a priest of the Most High God. He was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. That's the kind of priest that was needed in order to fix this problem that even the law and the Levitical priesthood couldn't fix. And that's the kind of priest that Jesus is. But what we're seeing in verse 12 is that when a priest like that comes on the scene, when there's a new kind of priesthood established, it necessitates a change in the law as well. Because the Mosaic law established that Levitical priesthood. And it only allowed for one priesthood to exist at a time. You can't have two. So if you're going to have a new kind of priest, you have to have a new kind of law. Jesus came not from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a Levite. He was from Judah. And, and so with this change, we get a better priest a priest who can bring about the perfection that the Levitical priesthood couldn't. That's what our author is trying to show these Jewish Christians. They don't need to place their hope in the Levitical priesthood. They don't need to place their hope in the law because there's a better hope available in Jesus. And while we may not fall under the Levitical priesthood, we don't fall under the law. We don't have to worry about keeping the letter of the Mosaic law in order to prove ourselves righteous before God. There's a parallel temptation for us right here too. You see, for us, the temptation is, is exactly the same. It's the same exact temptation that they had. We just give it a completely different name. We, we do something a little bit different. We take this, this temptation and we place it in our ability to do good and be good. For us, the temptation is to place our hope in our ability to be good enough on our own. For us, the temptation is to place our hope in our ability to, to, do, to be a good person, to do good things, to give to charity, to be moral, to be ethical, support the right causes, fight oppression, work toward justice, attend church, come every Sunday, maybe even you serve in the church. We place our hope in all of those things. For us, the temptation is do, 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 do. We have all these things that we have to do by ourselves. And we hope that in the end, when the scales are weighed, they'll be balanced in our favor. If we just do enough. But the problem is, church, we can't do enough. We can't be good enough on our own. This, this kind of hope that's offered here, it's a broken cistern. It's, a, you know, a cistern, right? It's a hole you dug in the ground and, and it would fill with water. But a broken cistern, the water just leaks all out and so it's completely dry. It's like having a dry well. This kind of hope, it's useless to us. It's a false hope. But in Jesus, we find a better hope. And that's the whole point of the remainder of our text today. In fact, in verses 15 through 25, our author is going to work to show us why Jesus gives us a better hope. So take a look, starting at verse 15. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our author is is saying that the evidence that the law has changed becomes clearer because Jesus has, in fact, come. Jesus is here. He's a priest, not because he's a member of a given tribe. Not, Not because he is descended from Aaron, but because his life is indestructible. Because he fulfilled the promise of Psalm 110.4, which is quoted there in verse 17. Listen, no, no Levitical priest who had descended from Aaron could ever claim that he had fulfilled the promise of Psalm 110.4. None of them could do it because they all kept dying. Right? Like you can't be a priest forever if you die. Take a look. Because Jesus offers a, a better hope. And, and so, so what we're seeing here is that The Christian high priest is immortal. Having having died once for all and risen from the dead, he discharges his ministry on his people's behalf in the power of a life which can never be destroyed. That's that's what we're seeing right here. That's, That's Frederick Bruce. And because we have this new eternal priest in Jesus, we see that the old law is set aside and a new better hope is offered. Take a look at verses 18 and 19 now. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, as we're talking today, I I don't want you to get this impression that the hope that these Jewish Christians had in their identity as, as children of Abraham, the hope that they had in the law that they had lived out up until they met Jesus, I don't want you to get the idea that there was no hope there. There absolutely was. In the Old Testament, we encounter faithful men and women of God who found peace with God, who found hope in God. And our text isn't telling us today that there was no hope in that. But what we're seeing here is that a better hope is offered. A better hope is available for us. No person could keep the whole law. You, you cannot keep the whole law. You can't do it. I've used this example before, but, but I think it, it really helps us understand that. So think about all 613 commandments of the, of the old law, of the Mosaic law, and, and let's narrow that down to just 10. Let's take the Ten Commandments, and as we think about the Ten Commandments, let's go to the very last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's, Exodus 20, 17. That's the Tenth Commandment right there. Now, have you ever jealously wanted something that wasn't yours that belonged to someone else? I see a lot of heads shaking, yeah. If you're not shaking your head, yeah, then you're lying. And you've broken one of the other commands, right? We, we can't keep the whole law. It's not possible. We can't do it. And if you can't keep the whole law, you haven't kept any of the law, you're not righteous, you're going to hell. The law can't make you perfect. No person can, can maintain that perfect obedience that is required by the law, which is why the law made nothing perfect. But in Jesus, verse 19 tells us, we find a better hope. 
If you write in your Bibles, underline those two words right there, a better hope. Underline them because that's what Jesus is offering us here. And this hope that we find in Jesus is better because it allows us to draw near to God. You see, our sin separates us from God. God is holy and righteous and just, and we are not. We are sinful. And because we're sinful, we cannot be in God's presence by ourselves. But in Jesus, we have a better hope because Jesus paid the price for our sin. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. Luther called it the great exchange. Where, where Jesus takes our sin, he takes our filthiness, he takes our ugliness, and he gives us his righteousness. And now God doesn't see us as filthy sinners. He sees us as holy and righteous and beloved. And that is the hope that Jesus is offering us. He becomes our high priest. And he gives us a hope that allows us to draw near to God. Jesus gives us a better hope. And that hope is secured by God's promise. That's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Take a look. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Levitical priests were made priests because of who their dad was, right? They were made priests because of genealogy, but Jesus is a priest because God swore an oath. Now, last week, we talked about the importance and the power of God's promises and his faithfulness in keeping those promises. But what, what I want you to see here is that this is one of those promises. It's one of God's oaths that established Jesus as a priest forever, Psalm 110, the, the psalm that Shane read earlier in the service today, the psalm that our author is citing here was a messianic psalm. Like the Jews of Jesus' day in the first century Palestine, they read Psalm 110 and they said, that's pointing to God's Messiah. That's talking about God's Messiah. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God swore an oath establishing Jesus' eternal priesthood. And because of that oath, verse 22 tells us that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Then in verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That statement right there right, what we just read. That's the reason that Jesus gives us a better hope. The, the old priests had to be replaced. They, they kept on dying, but Jesus is eternal. Jesus is our permanent priest. Jesus is permanently working on our behalf. That's the reason that Jesus gives us a better hope. But the core of that hope, the, the very nucleus of that hope is explained in our final verse, in verse 25. Consequently, 
Because of all of that, because he lives forever, because he is a priest forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That word uttermost right there in in the Greek, that's pontelais. It, It means completely, forever, for all time. The core of the better hope that Jesus gives us is is the reality that he saves us completely forever for all time. And as he does that, he becomes the conduit through which we have access to God. We, we, We can't miss this church. You have to see what he's saying here. Jesus' whole reason for coming, the whole reason that he came and lived a life we couldn't live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, that he was buried in that borrowed tomb, that he rose in victory over sin and death, the whole reason that he did that was this right here so that we could have access to God. He always lives to make intercession for us on our behalf. The old Levitical system, the only the priests could, could actually approach God. Only the priests could go in there. And it was only once a year, the high priest, after he'd been purified, he could go into the Holy of Holy where God's presence was. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus is there in God's very presence for us on our behalf so that we can approach Jesus, God, so that we can go up to God the Father. That's the core of the hope that Jesus gives us. As we began today, I I showed you two rings. And and they were both beautiful rings. Like, if I didn't tell you that the one was a sapphire and that the one was a diamond, you, you wouldn't have known just looking at that picture, unless you're a gemologist or something. But but once you knew the details about those rings. Once you knew all of the facts about what one was and what the other was, once you knew all of that, you knew which ring you wanted because one of those rings was significantly better than the other. And today, as we've considered where we place our hope, that's what our author is trying to help us see. Like, like where are you putting your hope? Because there are these things over here, and they might even be okay places to have some hope, but, but there's a better place to have your hope. There's a better place to place your hope. These Jewish Christians might have been tempted to place their hope in their identity as, as Jews, in their identity as the children of Abraham. They, they might have been tempted to place their hope in the fact that they had the law, that they had the Levitical priesthood, And these hopes, they they were of some value. But our author wanted them to see the hope that Jesus offered and that it is a better hope, that it's of infinitely more value. Jesus gives us a better hope. So as we get ready to land this plane today, as I get ready to get you all out of here close to on time, I want to ask you one more time. Where's your hope? Where are you placing your hope? Are you placing your hope in your identity as a parent, as as a student, as an employee, as an employer, as a neighbor, as an American? Are you placing your hope in your ability to be a good person, to do good things, 
to, to make the good outweigh the bad? Or are you placing your hope in Jesus? Because only one of those hopes will give you true freedom. There's, there's freedom in the hope that Jesus offers. There's opportunity in the hope that Jesus offers. There's, there's ministry in the hope that Jesus offers. Like, like, think about it. If your hope is in Jesus and not in your identity, you're set free from trying to be perfect. You're set free from trying to be the perfect parent, the, the perfect employer, the perfect employee, the perfect student, the perfect neighbor, the perfect fill in the blank. You're set free from worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. You're set free from always having to win the approval of others. That's what happens when your hope is in Jesus. If your hope is in Jesus and not in your country, you're set free from the anxiety that seems to swell up every single election cycle. You're set free from worrying about Supreme Court nominations and confirmations. You're set free from worrying about every little thing that comes across that news ticker on the bottom of your screen. But more important than that, like way more important than that, you're set free to love your neighbor, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their race or class or, or anything else about them, regardless of what political party they identify with. You're, you're set free to love them. You're set free to share the gospel with them. You can love them the way that Jesus loves you. If your hope is in Jesus, and not your ability to do good and be good, you're set free from the burden of always having to get it right. You're set free from the weight of never having to have room in your life to make a mistake, of never being allowed to fail. If your hope is in Jesus, you can have a genuine hope. What our author is trying to help us see in, in this text here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Jesus gives us a better hope hope. And, and I really want you to see this right now. So, so let's look at verse 25 one more time, but this time as we look at it, I want you to put your name into this text right here. Jesus gives us a better hope because he is able to save Josh and Nathan and Hal and Kristen and Jason and DJ and Kim Jesus gives us a better hope because he is able to save, put your name right there, to the uttermost, completely, forever, for all time, as we draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. That verse right there is personal. It's, it's written for you. Put yourself into that and recognize that Jesus is at work for you. Can you see your name in that, in that verse right there? Are, are you able to recognize that Jesus did that for you? We've got those two rings, and, and what we're seeing right here is that Jesus is offering us the diamond ring. He's offering us the, the ring that is worth way more value. So don't settle for the sapphire. Take the better hope. Take the better ring, because Jesus gives us a better hope. Do you believe that? Can, can you live that out day by day? 
Let's cling to that. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.